Hey, it's Brian Winters of The Jump. With the ESPN Daily, you can wake up to the best story you'll heal all day. 20 minutes a day, five days a week, you get an inside look at the most interesting stories at ESPN, as told by the top reporters and insiders on the planet. The breaking news of SportsCenter with the deep dive storytelling of 30 for 30. Today's episode was one I thought our listeners would especially enjoy. So please listen and subscribe to the ESPN Daily wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Sam, what made you decide to write about Darko Milicic? in the first place. When you do uh, features about lots of different kinds of subjects, you get these ideas from all different types of places. This one actually came from uh, an email that a friend of mine sent to me with a link to uh, a thread on NBA Reddit. <laughs> and uh, it, that thread had translated a Serbian article about Darko and in that article, it mentioned that since he'd left the NBA, he'd been dabbling in kickboxing and had also become a farmer. And I distinctly remember reading that and immediately sort of imagining this giant basketball player, you know, in like overalls and a hat, like old McDonald or something. <laughs> and it seemed like the only way to find out was to go to Serbia. When an 18-year-old from Serbia named Darko Milicic was selected second overall in the 2003 NBA draft, he came into the league as a mystery. A decade later, he walked away with a reputation as one of the most disappointing picks in the history of basketball. So whatever happened to him? ESPN Sam Borden went searching for Darko and came away with the story of a man who was much more than a punchline. I mean, it comes... It's Thursday, April 9th. This is ESPN Daily. Sam, when people hear the name Darko Milicic, what is the word that comes to mind? Well, uh, I mean, I think the first word is, is bust, especially yeah. if you're an NBA fan. Sam Borden is a senior writer for ESPN and the author of our latest ESPN Daily Essential Story. Finding Darko. You're right. Bust is the word that I think 99% of people would associate with him. And the other 1% are probably related to Darko Milicic. Um, <laughs> how did he become you know, the most infamous bust? Like, what was it about his story that made him so closely associated with that word? I mean, honestly, I think it has everything to do with that 2003 draft. With the first pick... In the 2003 NBA draft, the Cleveland Cavaliers select LeBron James. The Detroit Pistons have the pick, and a 50-win team has a chance to add a very impressive international piece. Darko Max is out. I believe he's the best of the bunch. With the second pick in the 2003 NBA draft, the Detroit Pistons select Darko Milicic from Serbia and because it isn't just that Darko averaged, you know, six points a game in the NBA, because there's a lot of guys that have gotten paid a lot of money and been pretty mediocre. But it was like this mediocre player, Darko, was drafted right behind LeBron and right ahead of guys like Carmelo Anthony and Chris Bosh and Dwayne Wade. And so it's the context, I think, that makes him a bust. So, Sam, in 2017, you knew this about Darko. You had his backstory in your mind. You go down an NBA Reddit thread, as so many of us have done at one time or another, and 
you decide to go to Serbia. What was that like? I remember on the flight over there, I was going through my notes and my question lists and kind of thinking about how I was going to approach the story. And I was actually kind of nervous. I was thinking of all these different words for bust because I didn't want to like say (laughs) bust to Darko because I was worried that I was going to offend him or make him mad. And so like I'm thinking, you know, okay, can I say disappointment? Can I say like struggle? You know, things like that. And so then when I get to Serbia and I meet Darko, he shakes my hand and he puts his arm on my shoulder and like right away, he's like laughing and he says, so this isn't going to be just about how I'm a huge bust, right? (laughs) 2003 draft. So it's one of the strongest uh, drafts history you know somebody has to be a bust i took that you know i'd be the one you know you guys relax i'll be the one and he like he totally owned it and it was really great it honestly it put me at ease i think it put um the crew that we had with us at ease he had this real piece about the whole situation i mean he had emotion about what he went through and he definitely lived through a lot of it as we talked but there was a really fascinating sort of inner comfort that came through <laughs> fairly quickly. And, and that surprised me. So you met up with Darko in his hometown of Novi Sad, Serbia. But when he was young, Sam, it was very different there. It was part of Yugoslavia, which had just gone through a brutal civil war. What was it like for him growing up there at that time? You know, he grew up in the 90s. Uh, his country is being literally ripped apart by ethnic wars. The United States and its NATO allies are in the middle of a very intense bombing campaign against the Serbs in Yugoslavia. I remember he told us, you know, he spent four days in the basement of his house when he was like seven or eight years old, just listening to the bombs landing around him, just destroying his hometown. We just heard the bomb boom and the house was shaking and everything. And we, we know it's, it's, it's happening right now. His dad was a soldier. Uh, one night they were the family was watching TV while his dad was away and the TV newscaster announced the name of the soldiers that had died that day in battle. And his dad's name was one of the ones that was read out. And he remembers, you know, looking and seeing his mom just like bursting into tears. You know, then literally like five minutes later, it turned out that was a mistake. And the newscaster said, oh, no, actually, you know, that was the, the wrong name. And like a month or two later, his dad came home. You know, he like had this crazy up and down and what's going on with my life um, throughout his entire childhood. I remember I asked him, like, so how did you get into basketball? And he said that it was really it just sort of happened to him. It wasn't that he was interested in basketball. His dad came back. Everybody was sort of trying to figure out what to do because there was no school going on. Everything was sort of blown apart by all the bombings. And his dad said, look, you're really tall. Why don't you try basketball? (laughs) My father told me, because you're tall, you know, why not try? You know, I wasn't the one that said, Father, I want to play basketball. Father, I want to play basketball. No, I wasn't that. He joined a team. It turned out he was pretty good. And at that point, it became basketball was like his purpose. You know, it wasn't a passion. It was a purpose. And it was his way out of this place that was literally falling down around him. And it turned out Darko was really good at basketball. He made the Serbian national team at 14 then grew into a seven-foot-tall prospect who was skilled and could run the floor. How did scouts at the time see his game projecting to the NBA? 
he was a really, really hyped prospect. I mean, I remember we talked to Chad Ford, who is, you know, like the draft expert. And he was like, you know, to this day, I still believe Darko should have been an all-star in the NBA. He was, you know, he was young. He uh, could run. He could shoot. He was a really top rising star in Europe. And I think at that time in particular, there was such a focus for NBA teams on wanting to find like the next Dirk Nowitzki or the next Pau Gasol that when they looked at Darko at that time, they sort of extrapolated that out and said, oh, look, here's this guy who's going to be the next Dirk or the next Pau Gasol. So he never really liked or loved basketball. I mean, it sounds like he was kind of going through the motions. He was just big and wanted a way out. Do you think that sort of those feelings or lack thereof contributed to his struggles when he finally got to the NBA? Totally. I mean, I don't see how they couldn't have, you know, I mean, if you, if you have a real dream to succeed in a certain area and it gets tough in the beginning, of course, you're going to try to work through it, but that's the thing. It wasn't a real dream for Darko. So he gets to Detroit and it's not easy. You know, in the beginning it was really fun, but then when I got to Pistons, when season started and everything, then disaster started. <laughs> they had guys, you know, Chauncey Billups and Rip Hamilton, Rashid Wallace, Ben Wallace, Larry Brown, who was the coach, and he just didn't really have a lot of time for a young kid who didn't know what life was like in the NBA. He wasn't going to play. I don't think he was ready emotionally, mentally, um, physically, in any way, to play at that level to try to win a championship. You know, me and Larry Brown from the first day, I, I, I didn't see really love from him. I felt like he don't like me. But after we started working with each other, I gave him a reason not to like me more, you know, because uh, the way I did things, you know. It got to the point where one of the things that Darko said was he would literally root for games to be close because he didn't want to go in. He knew Larry Brown didn't want to play him. So he would look up at the scoreboard in the fourth quarter and kind of be rooting for the other team to make a run so that the game wouldn't get out of hand. He didn't want to go in and play at all. I was so mad when I got in the game. I was I was out of my mind, you know. I was just watching the, 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 the score. Just I was hoping that it's going to be a close game so I don't get in. You didn't, at that point, you didn't even want to play? Hell no, hell no, no. Didn't that team make it to the NBA Finals? They won the finals that year. And if you look back, Darko got in with about, I think, like 30 seconds or a minute to go in the clinching game. Uh, total, you know, garbage time. Dribbles to the rim, gets smacked by an opponent, and his hand breaks in four places. And uh, I was trying to show Larry Brown the hand because my hand was like this, shaking. He just pushed me back in the game. He said, go f- play. Detroit Pistons have just shocked the Los Angeles Lakers. I didn't see myself as a part of the team, you know. It's really sad that, that we won the championship. I didn't feel like we won the championship. I was like, they won the championship, not me. You know, I didn't play. So Darko, the so-called biggest bust ever, actually won an NBA championship his rookie year. But it sounds like he already knew at the time it wasn't going to work out with the Pistons, right? He realized right away that he wasn't going to be the star. So he decided, OK, I'll be something else. I'll be the bad boy. You know, he started drinking a lot. Come drunk to the practice, you know, you know, trying to, to, to be a bad boy and stuff. And uh, all the things that I did, I did to me. Do you remember what went through your mind 
the first time you decided to drink before practice? It, that was not before practice. I drink all night and then I don't sleep. I just go to practice, you know. You know, I was thinking like this way I'm going to just be the man, you know. You know, it was like this very stereotypical self-destructive behavior. And it started in Detroit and then it kind of went everywhere he went. Orlando, Memphis, you know, the Knicks, Minnesota. Uh, it was always the same. Some team or general manager would look at Darko and see his height and see those videos of him in Serbia and say, oh, we're going to be the one that's going to fix him. And then he would go there and it would all fall apart. And this is, you know, the circle would just sort of continue. Talking to his wife, um, you know, she talked about how like the walls in their apartment were literally like different shades of white because he would always come home and like punch the walls and leave holes in the walls. And so then like every a couple of weeks, they would hire, you know, like a contractor to come in and put up drywall and repaint, but you could never find the exact same color white. So like the walls of his apartment would be three different shades of white because he would just keep wailing on them. How did his NBA career ultimately come to an end then? I think ultimately he ended up just sort of getting to the point where he broke. It was Boston 2012. He played one game for the Celtics. He airballed the only shot he took. Darko in the lane, misses with a left-handed shot. And he came into Doc Rivers' office and he said he was done. I went to the locker room. I said to everybody, guys, I'm out, you know. Where you out? So I'm going back to Serbia. I'm done. I quit. And he went into the locker room and he told his teammates, and they thought he was kidding at first, but he was serious. He was done. The Celtics put out this statement that said that he'd gone home to Serbia to take care of his sick mother. But the truth is, he just felt like if he stayed there one more day, he might do something like that was going to, you know, hurt himself or hurt somebody else in a way that he couldn't fix. And so that was it. He was done and he was going home. Coming up, what Darko found in an apple orchard in Serbia that he was never able to find in the NBA. So what happened next, Sam? How did he go from being old Darko to the current version of himself? It took some time when he got back, kind of cast about trying different things. He had a very short and very unsuccessful attempt at becoming a kickboxer, which involved him getting beaten super badly in his only fight. When I saw myself in the mirror, I really, you know, asked myself, is it really you or are you trying to be somebody they're not? You know, you're supposed to be a simple guy who, you know, likes simple things. And then he found farming. He used the NBA money that he had made, which is, you know, $52 million over 10 years. And he bought 125 acres near his hometown and he created an apple farm. And within a year or two, he was selling his fruit all over Europe. And I like to walk through every day. and I watched every apple to see how it's producing. In apple, everything that's close to the tree, to the stem, it's first class. So you are hearing this at his farm, at his property in Serbia. How long were you there? We were there for about a week. We were at his house, we were at the farm, we saw his kid you know, at basketball practice. And 
it's it's an interesting juxtaposition because like Novi Sad is a lovely city, but it's very modest. Um, and there are lots of areas in Novi Sad that look exactly like they did during the bombings in the 90s. I mean, there are buildings that are burned out and, you know, it's all still there. Um, and so then when you kind of drive up to this area in the hills where Darko's house is, it's a really strange juxtaposition because there's like gates and a guest house and an indoor pool and an outdoor Hmm. pool and a a half court for basketball and a trampoline for his kids. And, you know, $52 million goes a long way in Novi Sad, Serbia, for sure. It sounds like his life is pretty idyllic. It's not bad. There's definitely, you know, he spends a lot of time with his kids. He's got three kids. Uh, One of them really likes riding horses. Darko apparently also likes riding horses. Uh, That was one of the most memorable sort of afternoons that we spent while we were there. We went with him to the stables. Give her feed your apples and the horse. Yeah. Does he like? Oh, they love it. Yeah. And like, you know, he's 300 pounds easy. And he just like hops up on this horse and starts riding around the ring. And the horse is like groaning. You can like literally hear it like struggling to, you know, keep Darko up. But like apparently he does that quite a bit um, and goes there and rides horses. And he says that he finds peace there. Well, why do you think he took to farming in a way that he never took to basketball? You know, I I thought about that a lot, Nina. Uh, And I think ultimately the thing that I came up with was that it's about the individuality of it. I think if you look at his career as a basketball player, it's largely about letting other people down. Because like we said, it wasn't his dream. He was trying to sort of play out this scenario that obviously got him out of Serbia and gave him this opportunity to make a lot of money. But largely, he was trying to live up to everybody else's expectations, not his own. And so I think that the thing that he likes most about farming is that it's his the one moment that I spent with him where I really could see like pride on his face was when he was describing how successful his apple farm had been. You know, last year I was really happy. It was the first time that we picked the apple. I was so happy. I was walking through and I couldn't believe it. You know, it's something that we produce. You know, we're picking. It's our apple. You know, we, we produce this. It's, it's a great feeling, you know. And saying that, like, because of that success, he wants to expand into farming cherries. And cherries are super hard to farm, apparently. But, like, he wants that challenge. I mean, this is a guy that, like, played in the NBA, and he sounds way more excited about cherries than he did about what it was like to play in the NBA Finals. When you were talking to him, you know, about that transition, about those failures of his past, did you get a sense that he had found some degree of peace because of his success? I think so. I think obviously the NBA was uh, a huge disappointment in so many ways, but he did make a lot of money and that money allowed him to buy this farm and to give his wife and kids a life that he probably never imagined when he's in the basement and his house is getting shelled by rockets, you know? And so I don't think that he necessarily has huge regrets about what happened because I think he realizes that it allowed him to live the life that he's living right now. But I do think it's interesting to see the way that he is a father to his kids. When he talks to his kids about the NBA, he tells them all the bad stuff. You know, I'm trying to tell him what not to do because uh, I tell him everything that your father did, don't do it. Your father made mistakes. So you don't have to. 
when I asked him why, he said the reason is they see the good stuff. They see the money. They see that they can have this life that very few kids in Serbia get to have. And so he doesn't want them to think that, oh, daddy was a huge success in every way, that he was a superstar. He wants them to know that it all came at a price and that he looks at those failures as the price that he paid. So, Sam, you went to Serbia to find out if Darko was still this sort of tragic sports figure. How did you leave feeling? You know, I came away feeling, I think, a little bit conflicted. I think that it is hard to look at a a person who makes $50 million and gets a chance to play in the NBA and gets a chance to be part of this amazing, you know, circus that is professional basketball and sort of squanders it in the way that Darko did and feel like, oh, you know, gee, that's, that's, uh, that's too bad. I mean, what he did, he did to himself in a lot of ways. But at the same point, I also feel like, you know, nobody is one dimensional. And so I was kind of heartened, I think, to find out that there is a second act for Darko. So I I guess I kind of came away feeling like, yes, he was a bust, but that doesn't mean that he still is. Who is Darko? Who knows? I'm trying to to find out, too. Little things make me happy, you know, riding horses, being in an orchard, simple stuff. I'm proud to be Serbian. I love to live here. And that's me, you know. That's me. Thanks so much, Sam. Thanks, Mina. Coming up, remember the sign-stealing scandal? This guy does. Here's another story I want you to know. With everything that's happening in the world and sports, or not happening in sports, one might assume that If MLB does return in May or June, people will be so excited they will have mostly forgotten about the sign-stealing scandal that rocked the sport before the world imploded. What would be wrong? Consider, for example, a man named Tony Adams. According to a story that ran in the Wall Street Journal recently, after seeing a YouTube video that purported to contain audio evidence that the Astros were, in fact, banging on trash cans to cheat, Adams decided to investigate it himself. So as Jared Diamond wrote, he spent much of January, 50 hours in total, watching 8,274 pitches thrown to Astros hitters during 58 home games in 2017. It should be noted here, by the way, that January was two months before the quarantine restrictions and we all saw a major increase in free time. Adams logged every pitch where he heard a banging noise. Per his research, there was some kind of banging sound on 1,143 of them, or about 14%. He then made his own website, signstealingscandal.com, to publish the data. In addition to the video research, he also created spectrograms, or visual representations of the changes in audio. And he broke down the number of pitches with banging by player, finding that the most were thrown to Marwin Gonzalez, 147, There were 139 to George Springer, 138 to Carlos Beltran, 133 to Alex Bregman. Jose Altuve had the lowest number of banging pitches thrown, just 24. Now, for the most part, Adam's data lines up with what MLB found. 
He confirmed the first game where the Astros came under suspicion, which was what prompted them to reportedly hide the monitors in their dugout, which would suggest that what we've been told is correct. But here's the crazy part. Adams is a lifelong Astros fan. So why did he do it? Why did he put together this investigation? As he told Jared Diamond, who wrote the piece, I wanted to see for myself. I'm Ina Kimes, and this has been ESPN Daily. I'll talk to you tomorrow.